Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with biological and evolutionary anthropologist Augustine Fuentes on our species moment. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hi. Hi, Krista. Good to meet you. Hey, would you say your name? I want to make sure that I say it the way you do. Yeah, Augustine. So okay. Augustine, Augustine is is fine. It's spelled in Spanish, so it's hard to pronounce. <laughs> yeah, no, I would try. I would say Augustine. That's right yeah. then. That's great. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Um, well, thank you, thank you for doing this. Um, I I want to just give you uh, a little bit of an idea of how I want to approach this because um, you're so multidisciplinary, <laughs> and I think all of it and the integration of all of that. Uh, is such a relevant perspective on kind of, you know, this moment in time. So that's really, so we will, you know, when we, when we put the show out, we will mention all of your books and adventures. Um, but I don't want, I don't want to talk to you about a specific book. I want to kind of talk about the sweep of your thinking. Sure. Um, absolutely. I mean, we'll yeah. touch on different books, but yep, that's kind yep, of yep. just to frame what we're going to do. Um, which I think will come naturally to do to you. <laughs> um, so yeah, do you have any questions of me before we begin? No, no, okay. I'm 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 ready to go. All right. So Zach, are we ready? We're good. You're not speaking to me, so that's that's good. Okay, excellent. All right. So, um, so I um, so Augustine, I feel that you that the kinds of questions you ask in your work um, in these various fields you work in around how humans work and why why we work and what we do and why we do it um, are are really all variations on on that the core question of what it means to be human and um, so you take this up um, scientifically and it and yet it overlaps with moral and spiritual and theological inquiry and I'm just curious about um, how you would trace the roots of this kind of thinking and questioning that you do um, in the in your childhood in the earliest background of your life you know I I think about this maybe once a month or maybe more frequently <laughs> Because it comes up and I, I, I'm in the midst of some kind of project or research or thinking about evolution or human behavior or some of the significant social problems of the day. And, and I ask myself, why, why, why do I care so much? Yeah. Um, and, and I think a lot of it has to do with, with my family, with my mother and father and sisters and the people I met uh, growing up uh, here in the United States, in California, in uh, Texas, New York, uh, in Spain and Madrid, and, and actually, uh, luckily, traveling through Central America in many places. Um, I was constantly engaged with the fact that we're all so different and yet so much the same. And that, that's such a challenge when we think about what it means to be human. And I also saw in my own life and, and in the places I traveled, just the incredible differences in what people have and 
how people are able to make a living and to make it in the world, the kinds of relationships and connections, and, and how different people look around the planet. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and yet, again, it always came back to the sameness of it all, right? No matter where I was, uh, the same pattern showed up, the same relations, the smiles, the connections. Mm -hmm. I, I think I experienced a lot of that. I was very, very lucky to travel a lot and also to experience a whole range of backgrounds from of, of different places, of different well, languages. Yeah, your family, you, you, had, you would have had family in different countries, I suspect. Yeah, yeah. Uh, different countries, different languages, different socioeconomic and sort what of were areas. Those? What, tell me a little bit about the, that, that <laughs> makeup of your, of your immediate family. And... So my father's from Spain, uh, from Madrid, and my mother's from New York. Okay. Um, and... Uh, we have friends and family spread around multiple countries, and I was lucky enough uh, to spend time uh, while growing up with my family in Spain, and also to spend time with my family in the United States, who were very different, uh, came from different worlds and different yeah. patterns. And then in the United States, I mean, I lived in Oakland and San Antonio, Texas, and Berkeley, Richmond, California. Um, I've lived in Washington State, Indiana. Uh, all yeah. of those variations yeah. give you insight into the different types of people, patterns, places, but also the sameness. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I'd also like to, I just want to kind of try to piece together how this trajectory of the, dis so you are a primatologist and a biological anthropologist. Is that... Is you know, I, I actually, I'm an anthropologist. Okay. Um, okay. I, I, I've done work in primatology. I do mm -hmm. biological anthropology mostly. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of evolutionary anthropology work. Mm -hmm. The reason I like to call myself as an anthropologist is uh, basically anthro, right? I'm, I'm interested in humans <laughs> and okay. everything related Got to it. humans. Yeah. And, and the polity, right? Uh, the big sort of broad study. And anthropology has these broad sort of generously open boundaries in the best sense uh, that allows me to do different kinds of things. But it is a weird journey that got me here. I love the way someplace you described that what you got excited about about anthropology is this, that it was a space that that linked the bones and muscles and gut and DNA to of human DNA and, and behavior and didn't detach that from culture and history and power. Exactly. The whole idea that for us to really understand the human, you have to recognize, you have to understand how muscles and bones and genetics and the circulatory system work, but you have to also understand how the neurobiologies interface with the perceptions, the histories, the social experiences, the languages and the daily lives of people. And it's that conflux of events, right? That ongoing dynamic that just, that, that really draws me. And it's messy. It's messy to be human, but it's really fascinating. Yeah. Um, so just for clarity, so the the primatology, was that kind of a chapter or where, where does that fit into to your trajectory? No, I have always been someone who's been very engaged in the study of the other primates. Remember, humans are primates. And that's yes, right, one thing which right. is always funny. People are like, Our you're kin. a primatologist. Yes. Yeah. I say, well, I am a primatologist. I study <laughs> right. human and macaques yeah. and, uh, you know, yeah. a variety of other primates. Uh, that's sort of funny. But no, primatology is what actually So that's got another me. way of studying the anthro. I get it. Yes, yeah. exactly. Right. But it also got me into the field. I love Spending time with other primates, hanging mm. out with a group of macaque monkeys is, is, is a life-changing experience. Mm. Learning from other species that are not humans, but, you know, share a lot in common. It's the same with other social animals. Dogs are great for this. Uh, cetaceans, they can show you things that are not us, but that we have in common with the rest of the world and, and, and make us a little bit more humble, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, I not that long ago interviewed um, Jane Goodall. 
And one of the interesting things about getting into her, you know, the sweep of her work starting in the 1960s is that, um, is that in, in what she was learning about chimpanzees in the wild, she was revealing, um, she, was, she was shifting scientific and cultural assumptions about humanity, um, <clears throat> right? This idea yes. that we've had that we're, we're the only, we're the only creatures who use tools, um, that we were, as you say, like, <laughs> and even the way I asked the question, right? That those are primates and we're not. Um, but I'm curious, um, I, you know, I can't imagine, I mean, the field evolved so much, um, in the decades of her active work, and I'm I'm curious. And what's what's so interesting to me about all of the things you mentioned before about the fullness of looking at the human being, you know, you're you're using language like neurobiology, and these are kinds of new fields that have emerged. Right. Um, and I'm wondering, um, you know, even primatology, I imagine, is quite radically different. Um, what what you're looking at, or or, or you know, hearing, taking in in your work. Um, even in the last few decades, yeah. is that yes. right? Yes, absolutely. And so what, something that's, that's amazing, and, and, and I really want to give credit to the incredible just thousands of primatologists from many, many different countries out there right now doing incredible work, but work that's different in important ways from previous work. They're still doing the good science, but they're also thinking about conservation as a central component Mm -hmm. and also about the relationships, not just uh, about the monkeys or the apes or the uh, prosimians, you know, the different kinds of primates they're studying, but they're thinking about those complex histories and ongoing relationships with humans, with forests, with other animals. There's a whole new field, actually, that I was lucky enough to be part of sort of the early phase of called ethnoprimatology, which mm-hmm. takes as its baseline, humans and other primates have long, deep histories of interactions, of mutual ecologies and mm. shaping one another's bodies and lives. And to understand the other primates is to understand ourselves and to understand ourselves and the way we live in the world and change the world is also central to the understanding of other primates. So it's changed a lot, but studying other primates tells us a lot about humans um, and a lot about the other primates, but it doesn't tell us some very specific things about very contemporary human issues. And so parsing those out, I think, is really important. Um, mm-hmm. Primatology is fantastic. And, and if you know, people have the opportunity to just spend some time quietly, not in physical contact, uh, but not too near, but mm-hmm. enough so they can see a group of other primates, go hang out with them. It's, it's mm-hmm. a beautiful thing. So... Somewhere you use, you, you, I've, I've seen you use the <clears throat> the phrase "human natures" plural. Mm-hmm. Is, is that a is that is that a uh, is that language that you use often? It's language that I use often, repeatedly, mm-hmm. and if I can convince people to start using it regularly, I'd be very happy. Yeah. Um, so tell me about that. What are you? What are you? What are you pointing out with that? Because we do tend to use that as a singular <clears throat> sweeping. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. And it, in, in, in I would argue that this human nature, to think there's one single way of mm-hmm. sort of the baseline of the human, uh, is refuted by our evolutionary data, by our physiological and genetic data, and by our behavioral data. Mm-hmm. There are many successful ways to be human. And I think we can't forget that. Um, and so by thinking about human natures, we think about the commonalities and continuities that binds us all together, but also the incredible diversity that flourishes and it has actually allowed us to flourish. And this is what people don't think about. Um, humans are incredibly diverse and very, very similar. And so it's that that weird dynamic of incredible similarity, but many, many ways to do things with that similarity right. that gives rise to this human nature's perspective. 
I mean, what is that phrase? What is the phrase human nature or natures for you? mean what are what are we talking about see this is why i love the just incredible luck the incredible grace that that i've experienced by working with terrific scientists uh, from across the human sciences and animal behavior and biology and genomics but also with philosophers and theologians and a range of humanists because i used to think very simply about that term <laughs> and mm -hmm. i will tell you right now that i can't even give you an answer that is coherent okay. in less than 15 <laughs> minutes but i'm okay. going to try now okay. i'm going to give you a very short one human right. nature human nature is really that which bonds us all together mm. and allows us to flourish Mm -hmm. And and you're saying there are many paths to that. That looks exactly. that looks many different ways. It looks many many different ways, and we mm -hmm. all know that. But but there's this weird, um, there's this drive in 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 met, met much of contemporary academia and much of the world to try to pinpoint one single best way to be human. Right. And and I think that's that's damaging. Yeah, and not true to the way it actually works. Exactly. Yeah. So. So I have said a few in this in this last year um, in some big conversations I've been part of I have started describing I mean I started thinking about this in March we're speaking in the <laughs> momentous year of 2020 um, with all of its with pandemic and ruptures um, and um, I, I I have I have thought about this as a species moment um, in in terms of how we in so, on some level there's such there's infinite variation which is also what you're pointing at with human natures there's infinite variation in the circumstances with which people have met this moment but and yet it's this extraordinary thing that we on some global sense have had an experience together um, I just, I'd love to hear your reaction if I had been at a dinner party with you when that, when that phrase, species moment, um, was put out into the air. I'd love to know, like, what, you know, where does that take you? What's your reaction? How, how would you start talking to me about that? The first thing I'd say is it's a multi-species moment that this year, 2020, I'm going to talk mostly about humans, but I can't initiate this conversation without nodding to the fact that we've partnered with another species, this virus, SARS-CoV-2. <laughs> right, right. And, and, and it, it came and joined us in a world that we have largely created, modified, and changed. And together, SARS-CoV-2 and human folly mm -hmm. and f magnificence combined to provide us with COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And that's the challenge. So the species moment for humans is how we navigate yeah. this multi-species relationship that we have largely but not singly formed. Yeah, well, let's, let's talk about that. I mean, you, um, you, yeah, there's so much there to talk about. Um, COVID-19 for you is, you know, you've, you've said it's not, it's not, it's not a biological event or it's not merely a biological event. Yeah. 
It's a biocultural event, right? COVID-19 is an event that illustrates our bodies, the SARS-CoV virus, the bodies of other animals, our healthcare systems, our global geopolitics, our economics, our air transport systems, Mm -hmm. our, our ventilation systems in most of the places we live and work. So it's really a dynamic, all-encompassing biocultural moment. And, and my fear and my hope are the same thing. Uh, my fear is that we're not coming together enough. And my hope is that we do come together mm-hmm. enough to really face this. That's the species moment, the challenge. Can we do what we've always done as humans to succeed over the couple million years of our the history of our lineage? Can, can we come together and creatively imagine new possibilities and make them a reality? It seems to me, it strikes me as I, as I dive into your work that, that the COVID-19 pandemic in many ways is such an illustration of um, what you call the human niche, um, the way humanity exists in the world. Um, would, you, um, would, you, would you lay that out, what that human needs? <laughs> here, I mean, I'll give I you... Wish, yeah. I wish COVID-19 was not such a great example of what you have been arguing about. <laughs> right. It right. really would be better I, if it was, it was just some minor thing in that whole process. Yeah, I mean, I want to read something that you wrote. So I'm just to illustrate okay. like where, how yeah. my mind made that connection. Humans evolved as beings whose needs to touch and be touched, to converse, debate, and laugh together, to smile and flirt with one another, and to interact in groups are central to healthy lives. Yeah. And it's that's that's those are data driven assertions, right? Those mm-hmm. that's based on our physiology, on what we understand about human psychology and social behavior, about human economic and social and societal structures and about human evolution. Being together, being with one another is not just about sort of a social context or a psychological context. It's also central to the way our physiologies, our bodies, our circulatory right. and digestive systems function. And so that's a baseline and that has been really successful for us. But it turns out <laughs> for transmission of something like a SARS-CoV-2, that's also the perfect landscape. I mean, we are really sort of a perfect species for an incredibly uh, jumpy, easily uh, transmittable virus. Yeah. I sometimes feel like we, science, we get the science we're ready for. Yeah. Um, and there's something so interesting, I mean, interesting, interesting at a remove, also terrifying close up, um, that we've just, you know, really, in the, in the fields you're working in and, and kind of touching with your work, like, we're just, we've really just come to this point of understanding, n- not just taking in the notion of ecosystem as the way life works for all species, life on this planet works, but also that that our own bodies are ecosystems. It's, it's, it's amazing. There's this notion, um, uh, uh, and a number of just incredible scholars have doing really good work on this, but, but this idea of something called the holobiont, that organisms are say, not... Say it again? The holobiont. Okay. Holobiont. Um, and, and this is this basic concept demonstrated in a very, very rigorous way that organisms are ourselves, things, cells that are made up of our own DNA and proteins and all of that, plus thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of other organisms and their DNA simultaneously. So we are ourselves ecosystems, as you yeah. said. And, and, and the idea 
that um, these holobionts move around in the world, interacting, shedding, sharing, overlapping, fusing. I mean, it sounds like a science fiction movie. So we're uh, the holobionts. That is yes, yeah. yes, yeah. we are holobionts. I think I read somewhere recently that there are more microbial cells in a human body than there are human cells. It, it's sort of debated how you want to do that, but let it yeah. put it this way. If you but were just a like lot. <laughs> suck out, if you were to suck out of the body everything that is... Um, human, right? That is yeah. clearly just us. You yeah. still have a very strong outline and much okay. of the body filled in. Okay. Uh, yeah. And even even how, I mean, this is in second part of that quote from you that I just read, the very functioning of neurobiological systems of the hormones and enzymes circulating through arteries, guts, and other organs is tied to human social connections connections and relationships to others. But even things like the gut and like the gut biome, which is now, you know, described as the second brain, that's very new information. It's new, but actually, if you go around the world and you talk to people uh, everywhere, cultures across the planet uh, today, and I bet in the past, they'll tell you that when you eat certain things or go through certain kinds yeah. of stresses or when you're, you know, bad things happen, that they're going to tell you things are disordered, things are out of whack. So they may not know specifically that it was lactobacillus populations in your gut, you know, dropping out um, that's affecting this physiological system, but they knew that there was something wrong in the body. And so I think what we've done scientifically is gotten better and better and better at disarticulating the pieces Right. And now the challenge for science is to put them back together yeah. in ways that are understandable and make sense, not just to the researchers, but to everyone else. Yeah. So talk to me about the social ecosystem of the human niche. So if you think about a niche, a niche is sort of a description of the way an organism makes a living in the world and that world that it lives in and their relationship, right? Um, and so when you talk about humans, our niche is social through and through. Humans are never really alone. Even when we're by ourselves spatially, like sitting in a room, our thoughts are filled with others. Our our bodies are even potentially carrying, you know, the skin cells of others and, and a variety of other things. So we are always thinking with and about other people, even when we're not with them. In fact, our resting neurobiological state, like when you're at complete sort of rest, the sort of default state of the brain is a social. It's the same one that sort of turns on for social interactions. Mm -hmm. So, so that means that over evolutionary time, right, the, the bodies, the structures of being human have adapted to and integrated themselves into the system where the social is everything. The psychologist Michael Tomasello says this great phrase, um, a, fish is, a fish is born expecting water, a human is born expecting culture. Yeah. And so if we step out and think of like the culture, the social, all of that dynamics as the water we live and breathe and move in and how mm. it shapes us and we shape it, then that statement makes sense. It also just underscores why um, the disruption of the social um, because of the pandemic is so completely stressful yeah. um, to us on every single level and at a, at a physiological level as well. Yeah, and I think this is, uh, I mean, one of my great fears is that people are not paying enough attention to the psychophysiological or, uh, you know, more specifically put, the neuroendocrinological, the sort of mm. hormone physiology and brain impacts of what we're doing now. These 
lack of connections, these distancings, even though they're so important for overall health and for societal and economic health, um, we need to be aware that we have to find some way to keep social because our bodies and our minds are being damaged by not being around other people, mm-hmm. not touching other people. I mean, the most common thing I hear now when I talk to people about sort of what's, what is it like six, eight, nine months into this thing? And they say, I miss hugging people. Yeah. But you're saying that missing hugging people is goes very deep, that it's actually really reaching into us at a cellular level, that missing. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, and at a psychological level and at exactly the superficial level that like, God, I just want to be near someone, right? So, you know, I'm sure that the, as uh, someone uh, jokingly said, the dogs all got together and planned this because dogs are probably getting more hugs on a daily basis. (laughs) It's true. Yeah, or evil cats. Yes, yeah. I'm I'm allergic to them, so they... (laughs) They might have just done it on purpose. Yeah, they did it. Um, So, you know, you said a minute ago that science has to put us back together, right? I mean, so that's true. What I, you know, I said, I said, science, we get the science we're ready for. And on the other hand, on these cutting edges, we realize that every single culture around the world has this deep intelligence about guts. Right. And, and so now the science catches up. But it's also true that medicine, in its, in its scientific impulse, um, really divided us up, right? I mean, yeah. for example, I was at a card, I was, was to, to see a cardiologist recently, and, you know, I'm sure he's an excellent doctor, and it's an excellent healthcare system. And I was just, you know, this, what you just said, about how on our frontiers, we're seeing our bodies as ecosystems, we're seeing, you know, we, we, we have all these new ways of looking at Go back to this quote of you, you know, how neurobiological systems, hormones and enzymes and guts are all all work together and they're connected to the lives we're leading. Um, This doctor I met doesn't know that yet (laughs) or he doesn't know how to practice that. And I mean, that strikes me also as a challenge right now for what you said that what did did you say? The the bioendocrine. Neuro, neuro, yeah, psycho neuroendocrinology. Yeah, it's yeah, the whole that shebang. hasn't come to your GP around the corner yet. Like, so, that's also a crisis right now. Yes, I ha- absolutely agree. And let me let me be very clear. I think there's some amazing doctors out there, particularly GPs, who are trying. Who there are, trying are to there engage are. and deal with this, but. <laughs> Um, I, I actually fault the medical establishment um, here in the United States and many, many places for this sort of notion of a broken car uh, model of the human body and for this idea that you can actually separate the heart right from right. the foot. Um, right. You can, right? You can saw them off or pull them out. But in, in, in fact... Uh, doctors should know, but the, you know, the medical school, school training doesn't teach this kind of no, integrative no. sort of complex. And, and I would also say that the, the medical establishment is not only sort of the way we do medicine now, not only disarticulates the human and has trouble putting it back together, but it also divides us up along racial and sex gender lines in ways that are also very problematic. Even though those patterns are very important, there's a there's a big hole in, in medical training yeah. that hasn't caught up to the fact that most humans in their daily lives know we are, right, these entities that are composites of our lives, our experiences, our bodies, our friends, our enemies, and yeah. all of that goes into our health. Yeah, right. Yeah. And evolution, evolutionary biology, um, is another field that is 
has brought, has itself evolved, right? That that you you know you touch on that, and and you've used the word evolution a few times in this conversation. Um, here's something you wrote. You know, evolution is not, but but this is a new. This is an emergent understanding. Evolution mm-hmm. is not about bigger, badder, or more beautiful winning the day. It does not stop at the perfect solution, nor is it goal-directed. Um, and that is out of sync with an older idea of evolution that is so deeply planted in our cultures and in the ways we do all kinds of things, including think about an economy. Absolutely. So here's here's just two things to point out. One is uh, what you said is absolutely true in the sort of general popular and unfortunately some scientist notion of evolution. They're really out of step with what we know about how evolutionary processes work. But in actuality, if people go back and read Darwin and Wallace and actually read right. through a lot of evolutionary <laughs> theorists yeah. and biologists, you'll find it's much more complicated. It was never about sort of the bigger, faster, you know, the ones with the bigger teeth winning or the fastest runners. It's it's a really complex and it was never somewhat, just about winners and losers. It was never just about winners and losers. Yeah. Yeah. And and actually, it's really a bunch of small tweaks and moves and shifts. And most of it's quite boring (laughs) from a structural Mm -hmm. thing. It's not all sex and violence. Right. 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 But, but, but it is critical to understanding who we are and why we are the way we are. And so I think, you know, it's, it's a shame and I think damaging to our societies that, that we don't have good evolutionary education in, in, in K through 12, you know, in the younger age schools, and that we don't involve, for example, back to medical school, there's not evolutionary biology in most medical schools and medical mm-hmm. training. Yeah. And that's a little scary. Well, how, so, 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 so spin that out like how how would that inform and illuminate what people are learning in medical school or practicing as physicians so think about when we talk about organs right or organ systems right now most of medicine is built on a failure model the idea that something's broken we go in there and fix it when in fact an evolutionary uh, uh, focus asks what are the patterns and processes of variation in this system and how do they work? That's your baseline. Like, what's the variability? What's the range going on here? And in that range, what's the variability and how do we modify these different systems together so that they come together and function well? That's very different from what's wrong. Let me target a place and fix that problem. Um, and And it's true. It's very hard to deal with a lot of diseases in a holistic sense. Um, but the baseline starting point should be there. And then we should move to the specifics. And I'm again, I'm not knocking, you know, the incredible advances we've made in, in medical technologies and medical understandings. What I am knocking is the assumptions by many doctors about what the human body is and about what human lives are like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think an evolutionary perspective w- would help that. And, and I think... Evolutionary perspectives would help everyone because you can see the interconnectedness of life and understand a little bit more about why systems work the way they do. Um, And that doesn't take any of the wonder away from life. It actually adds to it. Yeah. That's also all the way through, Darwin. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I've had some wonderful conversations across the years with David Sloan Wilson, who's Mm. one of the people who's been on this edge of, you know, opening up imaginations about it being so much bigger than survival of the fittest. Yeah. But I mean, so just tell me, for example, so how old are you? 
I am 54. 54. So when you first started thinking about evolutionary biology, I mean, how have you watched the field um, as you've interacted, interacted with it uh, change from maybe what you thought growing up, if you thought about it? So when I did absolutely think about it, and I remember some of the early stuff I read, um, I was really influenced, as so many were, by something like Richard Dawkins' Selfish Gene, yeah. uh, by many uh, Robert Ardrey's uh, book about sort of killer apes, um, this whole idea, you know, Space <laughs> yeah. Odyssey 2001, those apes finding the bone and smashing each other in the head. This Hobbesian notion that, right, yeah. if you strip away the veneer of culture, there's this competition and this aggressive animal. But you know what really started to push me away from that was I started doing science. I started researching things and watching organisms. And it always struck me that humans weren't nearly as bad on average as we think they are. <laughs> right, that, right. That most people are actually doing great stuff all the time. We have an amazing capacity to be horrible. But, you know, day in, day out, most people are pretty cool with one another. Um, so that struck me. And then I started watching all these other animals. And I started noticing, wait, wait, this cost-benefit analysis, this winner-loser competition, that doesn't seem to pan out. And then I started taking classes and reading with really good evolutionary biologists. And they yeah. really spun my they head totally around. They totally moved away from that. Yeah, and, yeah. And, 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 and evolutionary biology itself, with something now called the extended evolutionary synthesis, is moving away from these sort of simplistic, linear explanations of progress or, you know, change via competition over time. And just seeing back to the beginning of our conversation, this great ecosystem dynamics, these different processes, pushing, pulling, melding, shifting across the landscape. Again, it's messy. It's actually hard to explain. But yeah. once you start to get into it, it makes so much more sense with the actual world. Yeah, I'm so struck when I'm speaking with people like David Sloan Wilson and others who are looking at us in this way. Um, um, how there's there's such a fascination now, you know, and this is connected to what we were talking about with medicine, right? There's been mm -hmm. the fascination with the dysfunction, the focus on the dysfunction, and there was the focus on our what I think we would call our dys dysfunction. Um, hyper competitiveness, um, and now there's this fascination with the human superpower of cooperation, and how that's what helped us survive as much as fighting and winning. <sighs> so I, I wish we would stop with the binaries, right? It's yeah. always it's always like, yeah. well, no, it's this, no, 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 it's totally that, yeah. not that. You're completely wrong. It's this, and, and the problem is that whole competition on one end and cooperation on the other. That's a false dichotomy. Yeah. Those things are not in opposition to one another. Right. In fact, for humans, the best cooperators make the best competitors. <laughs> so I mean, if yeah. you if you think about that, so it's a I, way to success. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so I think what we really want to do is step back and say, what do we see? And that's why I do focus on cooperation and collaboration, right, um, as central because the, the data are in, and that's a very, uh, you know, David Sloan Wilson has demonstrated this, many, many, many folks working in human evolutionary processes, people working with other primates. Collaboration and cooperation is central to social mammals and extremely important for primates and most important for humans. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean we're good all the time or no. that, you know, we're running, holding hands through the daisies for most of our evolutionary history. <laughs> right. no, we hit each other over the head. It's just on average, those who spent all their time hitting people over the head didn't do very well. Yeah. Yeah. 
And even filling out the picture, I mean, this is from your Gifford lectures, you know, meaning, imagination, and hope are essential to the human story as are bones, genes, and ecologies. And that's kind of what we've looked at when we've told this human story of who we are, who we deeply are. I think hope is an important thing, too. Um, and, and I think uh, my interactions with, with theologians, with philosophers and other humanists have helped me see how sort of including the way in which people live their lives and commit themselves, how they believe, what they engage in, those things are critical in shaping the human niche, right? And anthropological research also demonstrates that sort of the deep ethnographic moment, how people actually are in the world, shapes the way they see, they perceive, they interact. And, and those are evolutionary, evolutionarily relevant processes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So something else that you've pointed out that you know, kind of following on that, also that seems very interesting. So one of the, so we we touched on COVID nineteen, the virus, and then there's, and this is also part of the human niche as you describe it. Then there's the incredible economic fallout of, of the response to this virus, um, and. And it's also a moment, I mean, this moment was upon us, but it's even more upon us now. And I think this will deepen as we move into the next year. That there's something profoundly out of whack in the way we do an economy. Um, the, 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 um, I don't know, where did you, you know, the, <laughs> I mean, the, I mean, the, I mean, one thing that I'm so aware of is how the market and this, you know, to the if we ever believed that it was some kind of reflection of overall economic well-being or was connected to the economic lives of actual people that's just clearly not true and and the economic disparity um which what whatever you you know whatever your philosophy of that is um such a small small number just literal number of human beings control so much of the wealth of the global economy one of the things you've pointed out is that um, and our economy reflects our view of human nature, our beliefs about human nature. And so that this is a mirror of, of I mean, such a, I mean, it's such a tangible reality. And yet it is an invention. It is, it is, it is an act of the imagination. We created the contemporary economy, and we are suffering for it. I mean, there, there's no doubt about it. I think, I think what the way you describe this, that's this idea that right now, if you think about it, what, 0.7% of the globe's population control nearly half of the wealth? Um, that, 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 that's, not, that's not right. I don't know of any context in which that's right. Um, so if this economic system, this sort of current capitalist market global economy that that is sort of not the only but essentially the dominant in 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 the world if this only benefits a teeny percentage of humanity really um that that doesn't sound very good what what humans 
usually don't do things on average that are highly deleterious for the vast majority of any given community. Right. Right. So, so you got to ask yourself, where did we get this and what's going on? And that's the really interesting question because so many people who are even harmed by the contemporary economic system, um, they'll support it because they believe wholly and fully that this is the outcome of human nature, that this is the outcome of naturalness, that those who have money have money because of reasons of their genetic endowment or mm. some kind of incredible business neurobiological savvy. Or, it is always, kind of survival of the fittest. Right? Yes. It's a very it, simple equation. And it's just not true, right? People mm-hmm. who have money aren't necessarily, some could be quite smart. Many of them inherit money. Right. You know, right. the vast right. majority of people who have a lot of money right. uh, have Or they're smart had. at some very specific little thing, right? right? They're not necessarily wiser or smarter on balance. Than, a- absolutely. But it's, yeah. it's, it's systemic processes. And the problem is everyone talks about individuals. Economies are not about individuals. They're about societies, right? And the processes. So, in fact, I think if we could push a little bit and educate folks, or have folks think more deeply about what is it that we're doing? And I'm not arguing against our contemporary systems writ large, right? I'm not no. saying get rid of our economy. No. But, but we can, there's always going to be inequality, but we can manage how that inequality is shaped, how extensive it is, and how it works. Uh, we know that. I mean, economists know that. This is, it's, it's, it's unavoidable if you understand how these systems work. And yet, so many people are much more sort of structured in their belief systems to go buy a lottery ticket than they are to vote or to really think about how one would change the given system. And, and that's the power of the belief of human nature. Right? Yeah, this that's idea, all, a, yeah. The idea that this, this contemporary market system is free and open and the cream rises to the top. It's simply not true. And this is such an you know this this discussion is alive in our society and 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 I'm I'm a bit older than you and and it's a fascinating thing to me that it's alive you know I mean I um, the Cold War kind of shut down any any yeah. question about capitalism and um, this the perspective that you bring is 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 an interesting and I think a refreshing way to look at it um, because the other. The, because the discussion that gets had is becomes very partisan and actually quite emotional. Um, but just to point out, as you do, that um, that we that we have this system that actually is based on an idea about how human beings behave um, that is simply not true. Um, right, that it yeah, that, yeah. that this kind of economy is based on an idea that we are essentially rational, logical, economic creatures, and to the extent that we're not, we'll balance each other out. And I mean, you pointed out this study that I hadn't heard about in the 1990s. This study in 12 countries, four continents, and there was not a single society in which people consistently behave in accordance with expectations of basic economic theory. It- and that's because to behave in expectations, sort of to behave as a good capitalist, you actually have to grow up in a capitalist society. That's the way it works. If you grow up in a different kind of society, then your values, your perceptions, the way in which you think about money, for example, are totally yeah. different. And so, so if we created it, right, 
we can alter it. And that's, that's my point. I mean, I think something that's really important to point out is that everyone says, well, communist, communism failed. Yes, Soviet communism failed miserably, right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that American capitalism is working wonderfully. Right. 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 Those two things are not, they're right. actually not Again, even it's a related. False binary. Yeah. Right. So yeah. let's get rid of that binary and let's ask ourselves, like, how does our economy work? Right. Are people getting paid the level, the value of the quality of their work? Is mm-hmm. there equal access to different things? You know, there, there's mm-hmm. these questions, as you said, have been going on. Um, let's, for example, in the United States, uh, the last century has been this incredible dynamic of thinking about these kind of economic processes. Yeah. But now I think you're right. I think people are saying, wait a minute, how how did we get here? And the thing is, we know how we got here and we know how to change it. Yeah. Something I I also appreciate that you point out and really just that it's, first of all, that it's possible to have this conversation and take it out of that that fight about capitalism versus communism. Um, But you, something that you point out that I really appreciate is that... um, why we don't behave as rational economic actors, because you you are about understanding why and how we actually right. do things, right. um, is is not because we're stupid, but because we're social. Exactly. Um, you you had there's this sentence if, from your writing that I, I had to I it, I had to think hard about it, but you said we willingly accept losses as often as gains in exchanges, the reason is for the majority of humans, because classic economic theory would say that we would have an intolerance for loss, right? But you said for the majority of humans, exchanges are not about profit, but about making and keeping social connections. And I had to think about that because I think I think a lot of the spending, a lot of the loss that I do, I would think about things like clothing and face creams or 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 or, or, right or 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 um, supporting my favorite restaurants in lockdown, doing a lot more takeout, spending more money on food in that way. But then when I thought about it, those are actually social acts, right? That's Mm -hmm. about me being a social creature. Exactly. And this is this is why and I'm just going to make a pitch here for anthropology. Everyone should read an anthro book or take an anthropology class because this is a central dictum of anthropology. These exchanges, these back and forth, this is about our sociality. It's not about the money. And and right. and and I think there are many exchanges that are about money, but really humans are constantly we do things all the times for people which if we did the cost benefit analysis we'd end up losing, but we do them because we end up winning. They're part of this whole social dynamic that we've been talking about. And and I think if we understand that, um, then we come back to this notion that you know what's really central for humanity are our acts of compassion and caring. Right. And, and, and that gets us back to this idea of hope. Right. There's there's always hope for humanity and there's capacity if we think about our exchanges, not just as economic relationships, but as the patterns and processes of building the human society. We're going to think about it in a very different way. Yeah. And I, I think not just think about it, but if we if we just honor that as the reality of us, if we take right. that as seriously as we take the calculus of winning and losing profit or loss. Yeah, absolutely. And if we, mm-hmm. but you, you've got to change the way people think about it because mm-hmm. it is driven in us. They're like, mm-hmm. oh no, you know, you, you, you got to get the best deal, for, the best bang for your buck. Right. Um, that whole, that phrase could be um, yeah, unpacked in many horrible ways. 
Right. But 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 the whole idea that 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 we should be rationally assessing all of our interactions for cost benefits and come out ahead, right? Yeah. That the idea that that he who dies and it's usually he who dies with most money wins. Uh, it, we know that's not true. We know it's not true. That's the thing. It's so weird because we know, we know, we have all these adages like money can't buy you happiness. And we actually have a million articles in the newspaper that prove that is true, right? Articles about ri- the richest yep. people. But somehow we still keep living and aspiring, um, as you say, according to these deeply ingrained beliefs that we've been taught, that we've societally accepted and built our economy around. Right. And, and back to this idea of the human niche, right? If what we perceive is real for us, right, what we believe is real, then it's going to maintain itself until we start to shift those perceptions mm-hmm. and, and tweak those beliefs in a way that result in greater benefits for a greater amount of people. Mm. I had this professor of theology um, who, who used to talk about the real and the really real. <laughs> and it's kind of, you know, it sounds fanciful if you just say it that way. But the older I grow, the more that language and that notion of distinguishing b- between what, t- what is really real <laughs> and what we take as real, but in fact it is not. It's flimsy. Um, yeah. But but yeah. flimsy reality can be as damaging as really real. And mm-hmm. that's the scary part, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. the, the thing is, we've we got to get away from this idea that anything in the human or for the human can be all in your head, right? That's, it just doesn't work that way, right? Because the head is connected to the body, the body's connected to the world. Um, and so, you know, how we think about things really matters. Yeah, right, right. Just thinking is this kind of a nonsense phrase. Yes, exactly. So, you know, I would like to do something with you. Um, I I just want to, because you have this holistic view of us, um, I just want to ask you about some kind of um, experiences and notions that are out there in human life and alive in culture, things that I think about and speak about and just kind of get your take on them. Sounds good. Um, and and one, one of them is just, I would love to know, as you know, um, uh, politics has been a very fraught space in not just in American life, but certainly in American life for a number of years. And I expect that to continue. Um, I just wonder about, given this perspective you have, um, how do you kind of watch and live as a political being? How does this science inform your perspective as a citizen or how you live with the news, like how you navigate that? Uh, it hurts every day. How's that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, 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 it's painful um, in the contemporary landscape because I think every morning when I wake up, given the way I see the world and think about it, I think every day about sort of the kinds of suffering that are being experienced by so many millions of people because of unnecessary selfishness and lack of compassion that is stimulated and reinforced by the really negative and really harmful political processes and assertions out there. So right now, I think a lot of the political discourse is not about humans. It's not about society. It's about competition between, let's say, parties or or competition between particular uh, belief priorities. Um, but almost none of the politics is 
actually talking about the daily lives of people here in the United States, for example. Um, nor is it honestly reflecting on not what's working in the U.S., but what's not working and why that is. The lack of honesty, the lack of compassion in much of the political engagement, not all, but much of it is, is really problematic because it's that mean superficiality that people are taking as sort of the way to think with and about these topics. And it, it should be the reverse. People mm-hmm. should be really thinking about, well, okay, let's step back and like, what are the problems? We can identify them. Uh, and how can we empathize with those suffering most to understand where we start to fix these problems? Mm-hmm. We don't start by empathizing with those who are suffering least. Right. Right. Does your... Does your science, does the work that you do help you get some distance? Like, How do you discipline how you take in what's happening and how much you let it, how, you, how reactive you are? Well, here's something I, I mean, I, I, I tell people this all the time. You know, the 24-hour news cycle is damaging in many ways to, to sort of normative social interactions, uh, and people need to pull away. I know many, many people spend too much time just sort of absorbing that. So, so one way I do it is by, by doing a lot of other things that are not focused on the, the, the clamor uh, around the political issues. But the other way, uh, I think for me, is that this is all data, right? This is fascinating processes and patterns of interactions that have real impact. And so if my science, if my research is worth anything, I should be able to apply it to these contexts in order to understand why what's going on is going on and how we can understand it and how we can push back against it to improve it for the greatest amount of people. So mm-hmm. so I would argue that sort of my applying, like I have a couple of research projects now in COVID-19 underway, just trying to think with what can we do with knowledge that sort of takes the expertise of the academy, applies it to a situation mm-hmm. and tries to distribute those answers in ways that do something more than, you know, get published in an article that seven people I know read. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I feel that the the pandemic um, opened up such interesting language and um, possibility for for new approaches, like just just putting out there the language of essential versus non-essential. I mean, it's almost oh. like it's a version of real and really real. Yep. Um, um, and questions like... So we took this virus as a public health crisis of a magnitude that we would shut everything down or shut a lot down, completely rearrange the way we've been living and entire industries. But then it also calls into question, you know, how do we define public health? And of course, there's the matter of hospitals being overrun and all of that. But then like, if 9 million people die of hunger every year, why, why has that never been a public health emergency, right? Just the way we yeah. define basic elements of our life together, of the human niche. Exactly. I mean, the COVID-19 landscape is illustrating with an incredibly bright highlighter and bold underlining um, the real inequities and problems in much of the things we've been taking for granted, right? Much of this system, this economic system we've been talking about, but also the things we assume, like um, the the point of hunger, right? Uh, In the United States, 
Right, and, and uh, I'm just people who die, right? There's so yeah, many yeah. more people oh, yeah. who are hungry and children. Yes. Right. Undernutrition in the United States and, and children is, is enormous. It's huge. Um, and, and, you know, that now people are like, oh, hey, look at this, you know. Um, and, and, hey, why are hospitals completely overwhelmed by even a small uptick in, in ICU care? Well, we're not ready for that. Um, why um, do low-income earners, why are they impacted so much more strongly than middle- and high-income earners yeah. in this context? Like, yeah. wait a minute, what is wrong with a system that we can't take a couple nudges or bumps? And why is it that shutting down for a certain amount of time for the consumption commerce, why is it that breaks the country? Yeah, right. That, right. We're that, not even yeah. asking that question. Yeah. The, and why those, should and, that break the country? Why should yeah. that break the country? And so uh, this is, I, I think, you know, and why... Why is the COVID-19 morbidity and mortality, that is the illness and the death resulting from it, why is it so unequally distributed, right? Yeah. All of those yeah. things really illustrate the fault lines, right? And, and um, there's, there's so many people doing great work uh, in this area. I'll, uh, it's, there's so much to say about it. And I, my fear, though, my fear is that vaccines are coming and, and other treatments are coming and that two to three years from now, we've controlled more or less the biological spread of, of SARS-CoV-2, but we haven't dealt with any of the other real right. problems, the underlying structural problems that allowed COVID-19 to be what it is. And if we don't deal with those, the next pandemic, and there will be a next one, mm -hmm. will be so much worse. Yeah. And also, I just want to say, like, I think I'm committed, you're committed, so many people I know who are listening are committed to seeing those fault lines and not not letting that go. I hope. I hope because mm -hmm. this is not the time to shut up. No. <laughs> right? And no. this is the time and this is, you know, a time for, for academics like myself who are extremely lucky and extremely privileged to, to be taking the science to the streets, right? To be taking right. to the science right. and saying, hey, look, you know, what you guys are seeing and thinking and talking about, that's true. Look, we have data. We have suggestions. There's a whole bunch of ways in which things can be moving and changing. Let's keep this momentum as horrible as this pandemic is, there could be wonderful things, wonderful changes for future generations that emerge from it, but only if we stick to it. But, but from the kind of science you do as an anthropologist, you also know very well that data doesn't penetrate the human brain uh, and heart. Yeah. Data alone. Um, and, and, and this is something else I wanted to ask you about, but, but, but that too, I mean, you know, uh, what is one thing that's emerging through, you know, yet another absolutely traumatizing election season um, is um, is the breakdown of the notion of truth and the experience of trust yeah. across our society, across many societies. And, you know, you you know our we're not just brains. Our, you, this is you. Our brains do nothing without our bodies. Our bodies are never outside our social ecological contexts. Um, so how do you think? Because I have been just recently with a number of people who've said we've got to restore truth and we've got to restore trust, right? That's a, that's a, that's a common feeling now. But how do we do that? What do you know about how we do that? 
Well, the first thing is you're right. Data are not going to, they're not going to do it. They can help, right? Data are important. I really love data. I think having information that you are basing your assertions on is important. Um, but, but you're right. So truth and trust, let's just take those two. Um, first off, truth has always been a slippery and problematic reality. Um, you yes. know, no matter what, everyone has their truths. Um, and, and, and that's tied to what people believe and how they like perceive the world. Like human natures. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's back away from truth and think about information about data and veracity, right? Mm -hmm. Um, is what you're seeing is what someone says, can you demonstrate that that's, that has veracity, that that is accurate? So rather than sort of this broad gloss of truth, let's break it down to the specific arguments, the specific assertions. So I think that's one important way to not stop pointing out what is not supported, right? What, 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 what can be verified and what can't be. So I think that's very important. But the other thing, trust, that's much more. And, and trust is not just about sort of convincing people to put their faith in you. It's demonstrating predictability, reliability, and compassion. Right. And we know how to do that. And so if we thought if the goal of many of our politicians were to demonstrate predictability, reliability and compassion, I think we might be in a different place. And mm -hmm. if our social and community structures were putting that in the forefront, as opposed to other things in the forefront, uh, uh, sort of economic interests, let's say, I, I think I think we'd see differences. You can see this is not perfect by any stretch of imagination. But if you look at the sort of political debates in New Zealand, for example, you can see some attempt or a system wherein these ideas of predictability, reliability, and compassion are yeah, at play. Mm -hmm. And there is, a tr there is trust in that leader. Absolutely. And they Absolutely. have a capacity to act as a, to have a shared life. Yeah. And, and, and right now, um, my guess is, I mean, I've seen some, not in the last couple of weeks, but uh, earlier surveys of, of people from across the political spectrum in the United States, trust is very low. It's very, very low. Yeah. Very low in every way, shape and form. Uh, and there's a reason for that is, is that mm -hmm. the political leaders, particularly in the United States, have not been reliable. They've not been predictable. And they certainly haven't been compassionate. It, it, yeah. It also, um, it, you're description of the human niche of, as we say, this ecosystem in which, of which human beings are and in mm -hmm. which we operate, um, whether we know it or not, it then, if you think about a loss of trust with us as such utterly social creatures, um, you start to see how a breakdown of trust is just a breakdown of everything, right? It's yeah. such a loss of connective tissue within that ecosystem. Exactly. The, the analogy to connective, the metaphor of connective tissue is great because as trust breaks down in the human niche, pieces fall out or get wobbly and insecure. Mm -hmm. And so rather than sort of navigating this complex niche, working together, pushing and pulling against things to sort of move through this world, um, we start having it fall in on us and we get lost mm -hmm. and we get separated and isolated. And that's when things fall apart. Mm -hmm. I, find it, I find it very... Um helpful in a in a in a really kind of um quiet way that your insistence you know that you you know you said the the world doesn't feel like a very compassionate place that's that's part of part of that is what gets emphasized in what comes at us in media right so that's choices right. that get made about what is taken seriously and highlighted um but you say and, you, you know, I think your point that you made earlier, and you know, that 
it, you said, but it, the world does not feel like a very com- compassionate place, but it is, or better put, we are. And as you say, on average, in the main, and, you know, I think that's, I, I think about this so much that, you know, even when I'm having these conversations with people about how demoralizing and depressing it is to read or watch or listen to the news, if we just step back and think about the world around us, the people we know, there's a disconnect between that utterly depraved <laughs> um, picture of us that's emerging and how, how life actually really works kind of day to day, hour to hour. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that, that's a perfect way to phrase it. Um, it, it. We all know this, right? And we, we actually block it from our the front of our minds. Right. The fact is, day to day, we have lots of positive interactions with a whole range of people. Mm-hmm. Now, even in these socially distanced times, I mean, just today, I went to the store, right? I was in the shopping aisles, moving around. People sort of angling their uh, um, shopping carts and baskets in some ways. And some people not doing it, so you get all angry at them. But 90% of the people did, and many of them smiled behind their masks. Yeah. And when I asked someone for help, they, you know, had pointed me to where it was. A, a woman asked me to grab a, a can from a high shelf. I did that for her without thinking about it, right? Yeah. Um, that wasn't a cost-benefit analysis, right? That was just me doing what every human does multiple times on a daily basis. And if we step back and recognize that not only do we have this capacity to do this, but we actually do it all we the time. It. yeah. You know, yeah. I, it's it's very impressive, um, yeah. and we, we're we're forgetting that right now. And, yeah, and this I'm a, week that 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 terrifies me. It terrifies. Yeah, this week something came across my screen, which was um, which was a it's a it's a group um, called the Holding Co. or the Cult Holding Company, and they've they've created this list of the Care 100, and it's just extraordinary individuals and nonprofits and initiatives that are bringing the you know, ideas and strategies of care and the practice of care and caring and caregiving, um, both at the personal level and on the public level, like, in, you know, g- giving that a new future. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, just such a, such an, such an amazing alternate list to, I don't know, the Forbes 100 of <laughs> <laughs> the richest people. Um and I just feel like that's also a story of our time. And just reading through this Care 100 list made you feel so wonderful about what other human beings are doing. And as as you just said, it co- it correlates to experiences I have in my life. And yeah, and at the at the grocery store as much as um, in more dramatic places. Um, how if you think about it, so how do we how can we coax ourselves and others because as you're saying we're having these experiences and they correlate to to a list like the care 100 but we don't take it as seriously as we take um that narrative of disarray well i think something that that people need to do and for their own (laughs) mental and 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 physical health Mm -hmm. is to acknowledge those times that they receive a nod, a smile, an act of compassion from others. And when they give those acts, you know, mm-hmm. g- you congratulate themselves or revel in it a little bit. That's one thing. And I, and I think we, we blow these things off. We don't even pay attention to them most right. of the time. Um, but stop and say, oh, oh, that was really nice or, or something like that. That it's very small and it sounds a little silly to people, 
but try it for a little while and, and you might be, whoa, this is interesting. Mm-hmm. Another thing we can do is, you know, people are always sort of freaking out, what can they do? Well, if you are lucky enough to be able to ask yourself what you can do, if you're not running between the three jobs you have and trying to feed your kids or trying to find a job or all these kinds of things, if you're lucky enough to have some time to think, oh, what should I do? There's plenty to do. As you said, there's mm-hmm. that careless. There's all of these local community organizations. There's food banks. There's a huge array of things you can do without putting yourself necessarily in physical proximity to other people that, that you can contribute, that you can help. And so the act of being involved is also really important because then you feel connected. If you just stay in your home watching on your laptop or your TV, the 24-hour news cycle, if you're just being bombarded by these negative and there are many of them and they're real, but this, these yeah. horrible realities, if that's what you're doing, you're going to, you're just not going to feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, also people should recognize most people right now are not feeling very good. <laughs> that's, yeah. That puts you in good company. Uh, it's okay <laughs> right. not to feel good. Excellent company. But, <laughs> but, yep. But but there are things we can do, mm-hmm. um, and and even the little things matter a lot. And and also, if people are lucky enough to be able to spend some quiet time by themselves and just relax, just do whatever it takes to relax. That's also important. So I think people need to really consider what they can do for themselves and for others, and acknowledge it. Um, mm-hmm. And 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 that's going to have an impact on your health and on the way you see the world. Right. Is it even going to have an impact on your neurobiology? Yes. Oh, absolutely. It'll have okay. probably the easiestly measurable impact on sort of the, the kinds of your blood flow, the kinds of uh, patterns and what's going on in your brain. But, but you don't know those. What you know right. is how you feel, right? Mm-hmm. And, and people have to recognize that what you feel is actually a reflection of your body, your endocrine system, your neurobiology, the interactions you've had, the environment you're in, and whether or not your dog is, you know, rubbing up against your leg or something. Right. I mean, all of those things right. create how we feel. And, and if you think about it, we have a lot of control over that. Yeah. Um, it just it feels like we don't. Right. You have to claim that agency. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we humans are incredible agents for better and worse, right? I mean, we've yeah. done horrible things to each other on the planet, but we also regularly do wonderful things. Yeah. And and we just need to lean into that part of it. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if you, um, I know that you, you did uh, teach at Notre Dame for a while, and um, I, I know you've been involved in dialogues with theologians and um and around the subject of wisdom. And I'm curious about, you know, what, what is wisdom for you and how does that factor into human natures and, and maybe, maybe that agency we can claim as we move forward? I always think about how Homo sapiens means the creatures who are wise. <laughs> and can we grow into that, into our name? Yeah, you know, I'm not sure that was the best idea to write up front, name us Homo sapiens, Um, especially (laughs) we're the subspecies sapiens, sapiens, doubly wise. You know, lately, we're just not living up to that uh, label. It's aspirational. It's aspirational. Exactly. So so, uh, this is another one of those incredible examples where pulling out of the lab or sort of field research and and, and statistics and, and sitting with theologians and philosophers and human people who really, really deeply think about why people are the way they are, not so much the biological end of it, but but this sort of all these other ends, all these other processes help me. And, and wisdom, I think, is important because I've come to believe, um, to be convinced that, that wisdom is this capacity 
right, to learn, to understand, and to experience through perceptions and ways that facilitate different kinds of uh, effectiveness and success in, in mm. the human, sort of human lives. And so becoming wise is not so much necessarily the accumulation of information, but it's, it's how you engage information and how you use that with others and for others. Mm. So wisdom is this capacity to take knowledge and experience and do something with it um, and, and do something with it that, that offers the opportunity for change. And I like to connect wisdom with hope um, mm. because I think it's, it's that deep perspective, that thinking that, that, that offers you this incredible thing that humans have the capacity for, which is hope, um, this ability to, to, to really, despite what's materially going on around you, to imagine possible futures that are better and to strive for them. This also with wisdom is another thing that really concerns me because there is a connection, not exclusively, but a strong connection with age and wisdom. The idea that the more experience you have in life, the, the, the greater the possibilities are of accumulating knowledge and experiences and, and thinking in with them and sharing with them. And, and, and for many people, for example, here in the United States, to be flippant about the real serious damage that this COVID-19 landscape is inflicting upon uh, elderly individuals. Um, that's, yeah. That terrifies me because yeah. to devalue our elders is to devalue the very sort of source of a lot of human success. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like we've hardly, we've hardly spoken that out loud. And it's, and it's a sign of how, what was the word you used a little while ago, terribly superficial yeah. Um, or the public discourses, but I, mean, I think people, like people, have thought it, and it's hap that conversation, and it's happening inside hearts and minds all over the place, but not, not in our common collective discourse. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's that scares me. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, just one more I want to throw at you. One a, a conversation that comes up in a lot of my conversations, especially about our racial reckonings and um, living into the wisdom of um, activists and elders who who were so active in the middle of this 20th century and, um, you know, bringing that wisdom into the present. Um, this notion of love, of, of love as a public good, um, is something I think about a lot, and it's. I don't think I've seen love appear in your writing, but of course I haven't read everything you've written, and and maybe it's not. Maybe it's not one of the words that you reflect on. But I'm just curious if I throw that at you. Uh, is that something? Uh, so absolutely, in the in one of the final chapters in my most recent book, I actually engage with it because it is. You can't not engage with it if you're going to be talking about why we believe if you're talking about what it means to be human uh, love is front and center and i've long been hesitant to engage with that because it's it's a a, a complex topic to say the least and it's very loaded um, it's loaded yeah well it's, it's, an, it's a way watered down overused yes. word okay yeah. right exactly so yeah. so let's let's get rid of the way watered down overused version the hallmark card version and and let's ask ourselves you know what is it really it is this kind of deep whole investment in another or others, in, in, in other humans, in, in ideas, in commitments. To, to love is to, to take, take this incredible human capacity for bonding and attachment and apply it wholly and forcefully. Um, and, and so you can see that if you think about it that way, there's romantic love, there's familial love, there's all of these different ways in which you can do this, right? You can connect it. Um, 
but it also is really important because we have that capacity and we can develop, I think, wise ways to target this and, and to apply it. And if we recognize, I think, how so many activists, using the example you gave, so many people who've given their lives to, to trying for change, we can see that love lies centrally, right, mm -hmm. in the entire process. And to deny that is to deny the kind of work that they've done and the kind of work we can do or help do. Um, and so I think, I think beyond just words like commitment or devotion, I think we should think about employing something as as fundamentally dramatic as yes. love in some of these cases. Is is it a word that gets used in scientific circles? Um, well, I would like to use it more often, but I tell you, um, most people would then say, "Well, what's you know what's your definition? How are we going to measure that?" Right. Um, and and I, 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 unlike many of the things I work with, I don't want to measure love. Right. Yeah. I think as love is a process and a context. Um, I don't think. It, we're going to get anywhere by saying, well, where does love sit in the brain or, you know, where does it sit in other parts of the body? That's not going to help. What's really going to get us, I think, somewhere is to understand what the processes are. What, what does it mean to love something, someone, some process? And, and how, how is that embodied? How is that lived? How does that experience change you? Right. Yeah, I, I've come to think of, um, I mean, I feel like if we have decided to call out hate and give it legal categories, um, then we actually have to do the same thing with love. Um, I mean, collectively. And um, I think of love as a form of intelligence that, that we have, as you say, in so many ways. I mean, what it really means to love your children or mm -hmm. love... Uh, your partner or love your neighbors or love your colleagues is mostly about actions, mm -hmm. right? As you say, it's actually things you could look at as processes. I like that. Yeah. Um, and it's in, it's really, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a world changing intelligence that we all, it, these are muscles that most of us exercise every day. And yet we don't, again, this is another thing, I don't think we take it as seriously and say, wow, I can do this. I know how to do this. So, so what if we could take also what we know about how complicated and hard love is and yet worth it mm -hmm. in our private lives and we could apply that to the public canvas? I think, I think that's fantastic. And, and the way you said it, we can legalize hate speech and talk about hate speech. I, I would very much appreciate to think about love speech yeah. uh, in this way. <laughs> right. And and here, I'll go out on a limb, uh, but I think it's completely in there. I would argue that an expression of love is to be sincerely and actively anti-racist, for example, mm -hmm. to really commit oneself to the compassion and the hardness of recognizing the sort of systemic processes and patterns in our history and contemporary society and doing something to yeah. ameliorate that. Um, also, I can think of love economics, right? Um, in an economics perspective where you, the goal here is not to maximize financial benefit or success, but to think about the ways in which we could work within our economic system to reduce inequity, to, to, to reduce the stresses and suffering of others, and to infuse compassionate processes into economic patterns. I, you know, maybe people just call me idealistic, but I think that frame might actually be beneficial. Mm. Yeah, it's wonderful. If I ask you, um, uh, just 
this this question that that we kind of began with that I think runs through all of your work. Um, you know what it means to be human. If you just if you just reflected on how that how your understanding of that has evolved, you know, is evolving right now. It's a huge question, but I'm curious about how you would just start thinking that through. I went through many phases. I would say initially I thought humans were this particularly weird, magical creature that moved around the planet. Uh, then I started going to school, and, and that was unfortunately beaten out of me slightly. Um, and, and then I began to think of humans as another animal, one of the many animals. And, and I really thought of humans as animals and that were just completely part of the, the sort of world. And then the more I studied other animals, particularly other primates and humans, I began to recognize, yes, humans are animals, but you know, we're a very distinctive animal, right? Uh, we are so distinctive that we better maybe modify some of the ways we ask questions and measure data when it comes to humans. And so now, when you ask me what is the human, I would argue the one of the most amazing, challenging, world-changing animals out there with the capacity for incredible horror and amazing love. So I'm back to the magic part, I guess. But still, you know, I, I really think, I think, I think that I stand by that statement because I think it's understanding the processes and patterns and the capacities rather than saying it's all this or all that that's going to get us a lot further and understanding why we are the way we are. Mm. Thank you so much. This has been really fun. Oh, thank you. Uh, this has been just a really enjoyable conversation. Yeah. Well, um, I thank you so much for for making the time, and um, we'll we'll let you know what's happening with this. And um, yeah, I just I'm glad to know you're out there doing what you're doing. <laughs> well, I'm I'm also glad uh, to, to uh, be on the show, which is just a, a real honor. And I'm also glad the way in which you. Um, you chat with folks um, because you talk about stuff of substance, mm. um, but you do so in a way that's conversational and compassionate, and it's just not that common right now. Mm. Thank you. We have wonderful. Well, I mean, I just what you said. It's like there's so many amazing people in yeah. the world right now doing it. And, you know, just in the most ordinary spaces, and yes. uh, and it's an undertold story. And yeah. I experience it every day because you know who's you just who, who's listening and how they're listening, and it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> bye bye. Bye bye.